Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Takeshi Morisato. Today, we'll be talking to James Heisek. James Heisek, who is the author of In Praise of Civility, published in 2021 by Whip and Stock Publishers. Hello, Jim. Hello. It's great to have you back again, like after ah, the interview with other book. Yeah. So this book you published in 2021, um, I have many things to ask. Um, the, the, the composition of the book, and it's also a kind of your life work uh, in, in the context of both religious studies and philosophy, and it makes the kind of original contribution to that context, I, I find. Um, but maybe can you tell us the stories behind how this book came to be and how did you decide to write this book in this way? Oh, um, yes, that, um, I haven't thought much about that. Um, I was working on a bigger project <clears throat> to relate philosophy to the good life, which seems to me the only criterion for defining truth as more than simply um, um, conventional. But then the COVID epidemic hit, and it affected people's um, human relationships differently all over the world depending on different cultures, but it affected human relations rather um, negatively in many cases, surprisingly. This came at the same time as there was um, an increase in um, political, um, what's popularism, I guess is the word for it. Um, Alternationalism is rising its head in many different countries. And uh, the voices who spoke out against it were, were being silenced and um, ignored. So it was it was in this mood of incivility that one day I woke up and I remembered something that happened to me just a few years ago at, at the Marway department store in Nagoya. And that story of the girl walking in front of the elevator with her baby carriage was what started me on the book. Um, I wanted to get into um, everything that was involved in in that little story. And then it struck me that perhaps rather than make a rational argument, I would gather together memories and stories that had been important to me over the years and see if I couldn't um, encourage other people to do the same thing with their lives. The the problem is there there was so much noise in the political arena and in the vaccine and anti-vaccine and um, mask and no mask, travel and no travel, there was so much noise that it was hard to to have a discussion. And when you have enough noise, uh, the most unimaginable things um, become believable to very large groups of people. When in fact, it's just an often an errant occasional thought 
and it becomes true by the because of the number of voices that repeat it. You know, noise is no guarantee of inerrancy. We know that, but it seems to have been become a, a guarantee of truth, and we all get caught up in this. You know, um, in having the right opinions, the the very thing that Socrates and uh, sorry that Plato complained about, whether having the right opinions to dress up and impress one's friends or to arm yourself against those who, who think differently. So these were the things that um, were kind of in the back of my mind. Um, but at the same time, I didn't want to police the morals of people. I didn't want to um, set out a set of moral maxims or principles. Um, I just wanted to <coughs> discover, oh, let's see, how shall I put it? Um, well, on the one hand, on the one side, I wanted to string these stories together in order to encourage detachment from fixed ideas. But on the other hand, I wanted to um, find the conditions in which civility can flourish. And I wanted to both of them without the interference of codes of ethics or norms of etiquette or proper behavior. Um, I'm not against these things, um, but I just don't think the stories I was telling led to universal maxims for behavior. Mm -hmm. So I, I do have uh, several questions about this little um, bit of Zen aspect of disability that you demonstrate with these social circumstances where you can immediately feel this tension, right? Do you have expectation of this young mother is dressed in a certain way? And the expectation of the Confucianism and an old lady standing in the elevator. And then there's a kind of crash of sort of like, not the civilization, but almost like the ideal categories of who they are. And this young mother just performatively just diffused the entire tension in that room. And then both of them kind of recognize that, oh, we shouldn't impose too much on each other about our uh, ideals, right? So there's a kind of like a Zen moment of let it be, and they just move forward. That's the civility. And it wasn't just between the two of them, but be everybody else of us who were standing around. We were all kind of looking down at our shoes, wondering if we're going to have to react, if we're going to have to take sides. But she diffused it, so nobody had to take sides, and the harmony was restored. That was what was so beautiful. And she did it spontaneously, without thinking, naturally. Not just as good manners, but as... You know, we, we don't give ourselves credit for the goodness that we do sometimes just by not thinking about what we're doing. <laughs> and this woman did something very good, yes. Do you think philosophical discussions about ethics or, you know, the uh, usual discussions of morality or let's say even ideology in the context of politics, do you think these things actually make us blind to this performative aspect of good life? Or do you think they can be useful for us to actually decipher, you know, this is a good thing, this is a bad thing. Yeah, I think so. I think um, the problem is more we think back on um, justifying something we did, and we get so used to justifying our actions that we introduce the justification at the time of acting too quickly. Um Oh, let's see. How shall we put this? Um, like too quickly, meaning we just 
rushed into certain actions and later we just come up with these theoretical explanations for why that was a rational decision for us to make that judgment. Yes, yeah, exactly. So um, we make these snap judgments and snap is a good word because in, when you make a snap judgment, a relationship snaps. You know, just like when you take a snapshot, you, you don't really capture an environment you you snap your relationship with the environment for a moment in order to bring something home with you. And I think the, the archetypal story here in Western civilization is the story of the Good Samaritan, you know, who, um, who didn't think through the principles and the rules and the conventions about helping someone whom he wasn't supposed to help, but simply reached out and helped and when we talk about the story of the Good Samaritan, we turn it into a story about how there are laws and laws have to be followed, but there are certain times and situations that require us to put the law in brackets and act outside of the law for the higher good. Well, the Samaritan didn't have any idea about these, these ideas. He, he didn't act as the conclusion to a syllogism. He just reached out his hand and helped. And that's what I wanted to get, the moment of reaching out that hand, rather than the act of turning it into a principle that we then inflict on the situation rather than learning how to read it, or as I talk about it, as collecting the situation. Yeah. One of the examples that you gave about this tale of this old lady wanted to cross the street in London. Uh, yes. and you, <laughs> how far? Since I'm living in the UK right now and I'm observing this British custom and, and reservation among the people to reach out to each other. So I have to ask this question. Do, do, do you think perhaps even before COVID, there was a certain problems among some cultures that because you travel around the world and see different instances of this sort of like a good action do you think let's say uk because i'm living here uh and i think the situation is quite similar to a situation in japan do you think we are getting to the point where this spontaneous action of goodness politeness is often considered to be a kind of threat the social context is set up in such a way that the dawn look down upon me as someone someone vulnerable and do not expect my um, gratitude toward these act of kindness. Do you think yeah. we're in, in a, a state where weakness. it seems like it's really touchy <clears throat> with each other? Yeah, a, a sign of vulnerability. And um, I mean, there are times when you have to stand up for people or stand up for yourself or stand up for an idea. But those times are pretty rare and um i think we apply them too often too and i think the reason is that um that we we feel vulnerable because the modern civilization just walking down the street in london or or living in a in a big city you're pulled in every which direction and that, that was also something that i was thinking about <clears throat> when i was um young we were trained in the art of recollection and and that had basically it was being trained to think about all the bad things you did during the day and see how you could improve yourself. <clears throat> but gradually, um, you come to understand that recollection is much more than that. It's like gathering yourself together as a good way of preparing yourself 
for thinking collectively about a situation and not just about yourself or the principles you carried into it. So in the daytime, somebody says, hey, lend me a lend an ear here or give me a hand or would you keep an eye on this? And in no time, we're scattered in all directions and there's no self left for us to be alone with. Um, so we drowned ourselves in, in media or, or, or passive entertainment. Uh, but the idea of pulling yourself together again, recollecting yourself, you know, is uh, that's one part of the recollection. The other side is something I was talking about before, and that's to relive the emotional events of the day and try to see what was missing because of snap judgments and because of principles. Um, to try to relive the events and at the same time to recognize our own spontaneous virtue. That something blew through me at that moment. Something spoke. Something said those words. It wasn't me. Uh, I was simply an instrument. Um, not simply run from our faults, but run towards um, the virtues that we have. And these have to be told as stories to ourselves and to others. These simple habits of interaction have to be become part of um, the story of our life. And that's the other side of recollection. Yeah. So in the book, um, I make a <clears throat> distinction between kind of, it's a very vague decision between generic thinking and, and collective thinking. And the collective is when you get to a situation to gather together what's important and where the limits of the situation are. And it isn't just um, you walking in uh, prepared to uh, search yourself or prepared to simply be passive. Yes. Yeah. I have to ask. And, but I tried to do that through stories, through through different, and then the story of the old lady who refused to thank me uh, made me think just at that moment about uh, why why I did what I did, you know. And frankly, I did your, it in order to be thanked. Behind the, yeah. I did it out of principle, right. and I should have done it out of goodness. Yes, goodness, right? How do we? So the two two full, you know two full questions that are sort of back to back. So first of all, it seems like the modern education in the higher institution, let's say we would like to still preserve some room for liberal arts education rather than just vocational school. And in that educational context, do you think, are we doing a good job instilling this sort of like the civility, right? And, and, and then second of all, how do we cultivate this ability to see the differences between recollection and, and just memorization and become a part of this Snapchat series of Snapchat because it seems like the educational system right now is not designed to help us decipher the differences between act of kindness, like self-centered act of kindness, to this sort of actual act of compassion that which is the moment of civility. How do we educate yeah, us? I, to... I understand the question very well, and um, yeah. yes, I think. Um, I don't want to say there's no answer to it, but the the big obstacle, which is um, an unmovable obstacle, is that the purpose of going to university is to be certified. It's not to learn, it's to be certified. And of course, you go with the intention of learning, but you realize afterwards that there's competition and there's accreditation and there's my future that depend upon those two things. And what I learn about myself as a human being doesn't really have much to do with my job. Um, maybe help me to be a nice person at interviews and, um, you know, on, on, at the workplace. But as long as certification and um, um, accreditation 
are the foundations of of evaluating what a university is about. It's very difficult to um, to teach to ask the question that, that, that Socrates asked. You know, can can virtue be taught? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't even it seems try. Like you have the definition of the sophistry and doxa. It is yeah, yeah, straight yeah. right in that if you take the money from people and teaching, and then immediately it's a sophistry. So we do have this sort of structural problem. We can of... teach principles and judgments and gathering data and making decisions, but teaching virtues, teaching strength, um, or, or, or rewarding it, or yeah, um, I guess most of us get that by example. We have teachers that. Um, that affected us. And I would say this, um, I suppose I was that way. I'm sure I affected the lives of many people. But the strange thing is someone will come to you and say, you know, I took your class way back when on such and such a subject and that changed my life. Or you said something in class once that, and you had no idea that you were changing anybody's life. You were just saying something. But the 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 fact that we are good enough to say those kinds of things and we are good enough even as ordinary human beings to change the lives of other people permanently and to realize that people are taking more from our classes than simply our ideas or things we can test um i mean we all know that right from we look back to our own teachers or even things that our parents said to us yes um so yeah modern educational structure students could some inspiration from the classes and turn that into a part of their um, yeah and you can't set out to inspire anybody you know those are what Mm -hmm. sermons are for setting out to inspire someone but you don't it happens Mm -hmm. it feels like you you wrote this book to actually do that right so that the structure of the book is a circular and it doesn't have a beginning or end you start with this story from japan but you specifically explain in the beginning of the book that it's a, it's it's not beginning and end story. It's it's you can pick up any part of the book. Did you can you elaborate on that this idea uh, or how you came to the decision of okay I'm going to put this story here and then other stories into this order or did you randomly just like throw them in together into a space? Um. I just decided the chapters would be so long, and when it reached uh, that length, I would go into another chapter. And I I simply wrote commentaries on things that I had remembered from life, things that happened to me or things that I did. That was all directed. There was no particular... As I was going along, I said, oh, that memory, I should use that somewhere. And I wrote them down, and most of them were thrown away, but some of them I used. But things that um, that stuck with me. Um, I guess um, when I was young, I traveled a lot. Um, and I don't mean traveling with a suitcase. I mean living in a lot of different places. And during that time, I decided that I would not uh, bring a camera with me, but that I would collect stories. And sometimes I would hear stories from people. Sometimes I would turn the things that happened to me into stories. And when people would ask if you have any photos of your time and when you were living in Crete or when you were living in the northern Alps of Italy, you know, and I would tell the stories that I remember from that. And the nice thing about stories is that unlike photographs, which are not like the portrait of Dorian Gray, 
um, stories change. <laughs> Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. they get better and they improve and um, um, so I, the stories yes, have been a big part of my life yes right is it tailored toward the person you're talking to that's, that's the, the other thing yes. Yeah. yes yes so yes I you probably ex I, right, expect this book yes. to be read and memorized and just repeat the story somewhere else rather uh, than yeah textually analyze and cite it and quote it right yeah Perhaps. no it's not a book to be quoted it's um yeah it, just, uh, it should be read through quickly and yeah yeah i wanted to try to write a book like that most of the thing remember my mother used to write to me when i would send her a book she'd say well someday will you write something that i can read <laughs> <laughs> Same as i don't think Joseph's i ever life. succeeded yeah 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 there's a certain um, pompousness about the way I write, even when I write these these light things, and um, I've never been able to shake that off. Yes. Certain I do think so that your public lectures and, and essays, sometimes when you write really heavy academic writings, so you always preserve the space in which you actually do this sort of um, intellectual exercise, right? The emotional exercise of connecting stories and these anecdotal stories are extremely important for making the point, especially in relation to religious studies, right? The Nishitani talks about the differences between studying the religion as an object of study to religion as actually turning yourself into a question and experience. And he said, I'm writing this book not as to explain the system of beliefs, but the experience of what it's like to be religious. I had a professor in um, Notre Dame University in grad school who used to work with images a lot. In each class, he would say, I'm going to give you one image, and that's what I want to, to remain with you. And he would give an image from some book or other, some um, something he'd been reading. And those images, in fact, are what were, remain with me to this day. I couldn't reproduce a single one of his arguments, but the images remained with me. And I thought, maybe that's... Um, that that's a good way. Now you look at Nishitani, and we remember the images of Nishitani. Nishida has almost none. And I'm talking about Japanese philosophy here, but he's a thinker who works out his arguments and then comes to a clearing and makes a clear statement, but carries on, but always in the abstract. And no, no. And in Tanabe, when he tries to make an image like the Pompondalia, you know, for example, it doesn't really work. You know. Maybe, <laughs> It's very geometrical and, yeah, it's very intellectually confined. In fact, he, he seemed to be struggling with this sort of poetic expression for sure. Yeah. Um, is there, are, are there any images that are surprisingly came to you as you were writing this that are sort of like hidden in the back of your mind so long time ago? Was it always there in front of you, you feel? No, no, there were... Yeah, there were several memories that um, that I guess I had never told anybody else about or never talked about that came to mind. And um, I mean, nothing to embarrass myself. Heavens, I'm not prepared to write that kind of book. But oh, it'll, it'll come. <laughs> it'll, come. <laughs> it'll be later. God knows later. there's enough it's, of it's that. Yes. Incivility. Yeah. But yes, yes, a lot of things came back. Uh, it's surprising if you, if if instead of trying to make um an argument with a specific thesis to it, you just try to ask a simple question of what is it about me 
that at some moments I can be civil and some moments I can't. And what's that civility? It's not politeness. It's not doing the right thing. It's not being conventional. It's not being original. It's just, you know, what is it? We know it when we see it. Mm-hmm. One of the, but uh, we can't define it. One of the contentions that I do feel as intellectuals about this conception of civility, and it's really interesting because it resonates with some of the postmodern reflections on um, postmodern heroism. So think about the Camus La Peste, the plague. Um, you know, you have this civil servant, Joseph Grant, who goes through this entire story is unaffected, but he makes always the right judgment. Um, he decided to help people. He doesn't ask for anybody's recognition. He works on writing, but he works on this one image all the time and he scrap it and he begins again. So the main character, the viewer says like, this is the postmodern hero that will be untouched by this plague, right? That this sort of like a spiritual emptiness. Yes. But that's, that's a good example. A, yeah. Yeah. But there's also, there's like a little bit of like intellectual mockery toward him that, you know, contemporary philosophers and intellectuals have this difficulty of embracing him as moral ideal, right? That he just happens to survive. So that's so that's one thing. So that how the inter- contemporary intellectuals could embrace this conception of civility more than this passive, you know, embrace embracing of the world. And and then the second one is like, how do we deal with the situations like the um, woman students in Iran or young students in Iran, because I'm working with some PhD applications from Iran, right? That, and then I recently interview author who wrote about the Arab Spring in Spring in Egypt in 2011 of this uprising of youth to achieve democracy in Tahrir Square, and then entire dropped into di- like a military, almost like a dictatorship. Um, so the civility, on the one hand, you have this impotence, right? And then the civility, on the other hand, is this drive toward totalitarianism and a dictatorship. How do you combat these two really negative images that come with civilization or civility? Yeah, first of all, to go back to the example from Camus, um, what, what struck me about the, this hero, as you, the postmodern hero, as you call him, is that um, his heroism is not that he was uh, selfless and egoless. It, you know, um, it's not that he wasn't like other people who who fled from or um, made outcasts of the people who were infected with the plague, but he embraced it, no? And, and the thing is that it's not just the absence of inhumanity, it's something positive. It's something he did. Not by um, not acting like others, not by deliberately being selfless. It, it, it was an awareness that the, the plague wasn't about him at all. It was about the people who were infected. So he was able to read this environment and and realize he's a participant in it. And remove himself from the center of the picture. So his judgment and what he did in his life and his infection weren't the problem. He gave himself over to the situation. 
And that's possible to do in certain circumstances. When it comes to um, revolution against tyrannical governments, um, I mean, civility has its place, but it's, um, it's, it's weak, it's powerless. Um, it, it, it looks like docility and resignation and submissiveness and complacency and uh, artificiality um, of refusal to engage with the situation. Sure. I mean, like any virtue, every virtue has its place in its limits, things it can do and things it can't. But my problem is that when we take these great political and great moral issues of the day and make them the template for the everyday actions when we walk into a, to a store and deal with a shopkeeper or when we bump into somebody on the subway or the elevator, um, we've got it backwards. So I think one of the problems with preoccupation with principles is that we tend to, as I said before, inflict them on situations that just require for you to remove yourself from the picture. And um, if something needs to be done to allow it to happen or to assist it, you know, that's the problem is that not all moral issues are problems of revolution. And, and Yeah. So it seems like, you know, the capitalist realism that talks about how the entire social structure is set up in such a way that it's impossible for us to remove ourselves from this picture of capital, capitalism. And even if we provide the space in which this is the, one of the, my uh, master's students gave me this example from reading the Mark Fisher is that sometimes we provide the space in which we can watch the anti-capitalist movie, but so that you can appease your conscience about participating in capitalism, you know, but then when you get out of the movie, you just go straight back to this really bleak image of capitalist realism. But you're suggesting that even having a simple conversation about life with the shopkeeper on that moment, you could have this sort of like freedom from oh, sure. system or government. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yes. A freedom from the whole debate about capitalism or anti-capitalism. You know, you don't have to carry that around with you because it, for most situations it's irrelevant. But the real problem is not that, that that issue, that moral issue is irrelevant, but that you're irrelevant to most situations, your history, your concerns, your preoccupations. That's why I gave the example of the women in the department store smiling as a way of removing their personality to allow the, the guest to be treated you know, with dignity, yes, which seems to us cold, frozen smile, when in fact there's another side to it. Yes, they remove themselves from the picture. They're capable of removing themselves from the picture. What about the, the so the, you know, I have a students from Iran um, or students or the, the intellectuals from Egypt that are really, really struggling with current regime that dictating what it is for them to be Egyptian or what it is for them to be Iranian. And then like within that context, they still feel really entrapped. Like what would be the praise of civility in the context of um, military dictatorship or the, you know, I think the capitalism, we can still easily imagine what it is like for us to be free from that system, right? That the participate in social activism and all these activities, but what would be the, um, the civility for people coming from the background that is really uncivil? I'm, I'm not sure that 
that the civility is um, is able to deal with uh, with situations on that on that scale. Civility is something that happens. It's something that that we get caught up in, we're involved in, and it happens a lot more when we get out of the way. Until it's clear that we're needed. So just to be able to recognize that you become an obstacle <clears throat> to a situation rather than, um, you know, the carrier of incivility, that's half the battle. But when there's nothing you can do but complain about how helpless you, you, you are, sometimes silence is the best response. Um, if, if you look at what actually comes from, um, from political debate, from people who are living under an oppressive regime, or those of us who live in, um, in structured societies where the structural evil is out of the hands of everybody, huh? when you look at what it does to us and what kind of people we are when we carry on the discussions about what we should do to fight this, uh, this evil, this torment, um, of, often it's... Um, um, it's just complaining about our own helplessness, thinking of ourselves as victims. Um, um, I mean, that, that may look like, like cynical, like, well, there's nothing you can do, so just keep silence or just back up. No, what I'm saying is that, <clears throat> that if you recognize that there's nothing you can do, um, then you're in a position, <clears throat> I think, to deal with the people who think differently from you a little a little a little better of course there are things we can do and face with the with the regime and things we have to do i mean tyranny of course has to be resisted and, and oppression has to be even oppressive structures have to be um have to be demolished yes that's something we have to do but what i'm saying is even in the process of doing that I think there's a way to do it selflessly and there's a way to do it with, with yourself so that you don't become an ideologue. So the, the d- debate about ideology is not simply a debate about one set of beliefs against another set of beliefs. It's about your clinging to those beliefs. And the freer you are from, from the ideology, the better revolutionary you are. This is uh, what you find in the diaries of Che Guevara, you know, as he's fleeing from authorities, as he's realizing his, his freedom comes from um, his um, looseness, the looseness of his ties to, the, to ideology. Yeah. To the establishment ideology. That's really interesting because even the, come, come back to the plague, like uh, Joseph Grant's this like the inco- incoherent story about this woman on a horseback in one day in a sunny day in the street becomes sort of like a comfort story for the older teams, the health team. That's how is she doing today, right? That is almost everybody's just talking about this false progress of writing this novel that everybody knows that it's not going to be finished, right? So it's like this sort of like complete stories that somehow entertain them to keep participating in this seemingly meaningless act of kindness you know that it seems like these things that couldn't be seen as a productive part of this intellectual narrative or it can be a productive part of these ideological dialogues but somehow the fuels our capacity to keep fighting the oppressive regime or something like that yeah so do you think all intellectuals should write this story uh, type of Writing exercise early in their like academic career, <laughs> was, or much it was later. Good like... for me, that's what I'll say. It was good for me. Uh, yeah, some people are 
are better at, at this than others. As, as, as I realized when how I was the, writing how did the publisher, How did the publisher took it? Because it seems like this book would be a nightmare to categorize. Uh, I'm pretty sure most <laughs> new books that were members and said, like, yeah, it's, they it's put it in... They put it in Christianity and uh, evangelization and so forth, the categories. And I wrote and said, you know, maybe that's not the right category to put it in. Well, absolutely not, right? Yeah, that it, yeah. it doesn't have the theological so undertone a at problem, all. Yeah. But now right. we have an interesting I mean, problem. Is, and um, this is one that I really don't know how to solve. The Spanish translation has been completed and is coming out this month or next month. But we fantastic. don't have a word for civility in Spanish. <laughs> yeah what what would be the what would be the japanese though like what would be the oh yeah what, oh wow yeah. yes i would yeah, like the, to hear you can talk around it but i really don't know a word for i mean it's the confucian idea of ray right of 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 a propriety that is comes from within and adjusts to the situation um yeah it's it's a good thing it's uh, i i don't know but maybe that word has resonance for me just because of, of English literature and, and the way I was raised. I'm not sure. But we need to find certain words. I mean, there are many words in Japanese, as you know, that we don't have good English equivalents for. The English equivalent only touches one side of the word. So, What are yes. the um, front Spanish candidates for that term? Like, What are the um, list of terms that they tried? What did we do in the end with... Um, um, I think we we ended up using. Let me. Uh, Who is translating uh, translating this text? Um, I, I I translated with somebody I I didn't know. Oh, fantastic! Let me see what um, Conto Portada. If they, I wrote. I had to write a little note a note at the beginning to explain about the word. I can't find the title that we came up with now, but I think the 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 subtitle was something like in in search of goodness. In search of goodness, uh, I of see. Goodness, it's yeah. Like no can keep yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh wow. You know, I know. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. Yeah, it's it's it does have right the Zen undertone of letting the situation speak for itself rather than imposing your categorical understanding of, about the world into the dialogue. So just see how this interrelationality between subject and object flourish into this sort of free dialogue between them, you know. And then Yeah, and watch I mean, and watch end. yourself acting when you get out of the way. <laughs> right. Yeah, so providing providing the space, uh, or basho, as Nishida would say, right? The providing the space in which it can flourish. So yeah, the Kyoto School of Philosophy is capable of deducing <laughs> all these literally examples into intellectual framework. Yeah, um, are you so the? Would you be interested in giving a talk about this book in Spanish as well? Because there's a Spanish channel to the New Books yeah, Network. Yeah, probably, well, when I go to, um, in the summer to Spain, we will have a book. Um, usually we have in one, in one of the, leave it, in one of the uh, bookstores or 
coffee shops or something, they have book presentations. It's rather common in Spain. And so I'm sure I will, I will do that again. I've done it for many, many times for different books. So I enjoy doing that. It's great fun. Yeah. Doing or sometimes they have you read actually, a page or something. Yeah. 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 And then finally, yeah. there's a book that they can enjoy reading. Ah, yes. One <laughs> of mine. Yes. Instead of one, they have to bang their heads against the wall. Yeah. Over. Yes. <laughs> Are you thinking about any sequel to this project? Or, um, no, I haven't, I haven't thought of, of it. Um, I, I think yeah. of many things I could have put in, many things I could have said better, as always, right? You finish your book and, um, yeah, it's already passed. passed its, I, I do uh, think some of the stories running. that uh, surprisingly didn't go into this book is um, um, many stories about enlightenment. When you explain what the Buddhist enlightenment is like, remember that there's a story that you give about this London Bridge that this homeless guy is picked up by rich men and I go through the whole process. It would be something like that. I, I, I do feel, you know, you, you gave that talk in many different lectures and I think, you know, that would have been, that's a very good thought. I regret now that I didn't put it in. Yes. It didn't yes. put it in. So you did. Yeah. So here we go. We still I, have I the sequel. It, it's, it's really good. Yes. Right. But I think that's, that's one, one of many different examples that I've heard in, in, in the course of years working on your text and and philosophy um yeah um so jim we we uh, we're coming really close to the end of this interview so i would like to ask you um what are you working on and what's the sort of what, what should we expect from your work in the field of i'm, I'm working um, now uh, on, on the idea of the good life i mean what makes a life a good life and how do you pursue it and what how what effect does that have on on things like metaphysics and epistemology and uh, moral ethics, cosmology, um, ecology, those kinds of things. Uh, what, what, you know, what makes a life a good life? And of course, that's an old Platonic question, but <clears throat> but um, um, I'm, I'm beginning at it uh, to approach it from the idea of, um, uh, of desires and from the debate between Kant and, 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 uh, and Schelling over um, desire and wishes against duty and morality. And um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of fun. But I've been sidetracked by helping other people with their books that I think are better than anything I'm writing. So I get wrapped up kind of helping them. <laughs> you just pulled into life. the yes. different projects and helped them. <laughs> yeah, wow. you know I'm looking forward like to your uh, civility, editorial civility to other um Project and I yeah. know one time I asked you a question so how many books are you working on and are you working on five and then you answered six and I was just joking to say five books so I totally understand that you're quite busy with all of these projects but yeah good luck for these both yeah forthcoming project I'm really looking forward to it and you know thank you so much for talking to us about your book it's and, always good talking with you you ask the right questions and uh yeah, it's stimulating. I appreciate it. That's uh, that's also the another sign of a civility. And Thank you so when much, I sign Jim. off, I always walk away thinking, "Ah, oh, that's what I should have said." <laughs> <laughs> the regrets that we always, yeah. always have with these interviews, and it's the same for me as interviewer. But thank you so much again, Jim. Okay. And thank you so much, everyone. This was our discussion with Jim Heisek, who is the author of *In Praise of Civility*. See you next time. <laughs>